The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. So for me, I'm asking, could there be another workable model which will provide more value congruence and ensure I can still pay the rent? Could I offer a journey alongside people and ask them to pay what they could afford? So many of us look at the world we live in and wonder how we might make a bigger impact. Well, after a decade in academic settings with a focus on career advising and HR, today's guest, Claire, is now a parent to two kids at the beginning of their teen years and a new leader in elected government. And she's really proud of how she has accomplished this, even in light of her anti-performer impulse. And she wants to devote herself to not just making a big impact on her community, but also being there for her family and exploring the development and launch of a communal housing project with a focus on the values of sustainability and simplicity, while also reimagining how she might bring her vision and services and abilities to those in need in a more equitable way. And she's deeply concerned about what she sees as the commoditization or consumerization of people and services. And she's wondering what's really possible here. How can she affect the greatest change in her community, in her family's lives, in her own life? What decisions and models might help her figure out what to say yes and no to in a way that makes a real difference and is also sustainable just on a personal level? And that is where we're headed in today's Spark Podcast. And on deck with me this week from the Spark Brain Trust to help tease out what really matters and share insights and ideas is founder of Parachute Executive Coaching, acclaimed executive coach, advisor to senior leaders for more than two decades, and the author of two great books, The Accidental Alpha Woman and The Complete Executive, Karen Wright. Quick note, you'll hear us mention something we call sparkotypes in conversation. Well, what is that? Turns out we all have a unique imprint for work that makes us come alive. This is your sparkotype. When you discover yours, everything, your entire work life, even parts of your personal life and relationships, they begin to make more sense. And often until we know ours, we're kind of fumbling in the dark a bit. Just like today's listener did, you can discover your Sparkotype for free at Sparkotype.com. You'll find a link in the show notes. And hey, if you'd like us to answer your question in an upcoming episode, you can also find the link to submit your question to the Spark Brain Trust in the show notes as well. Now, on to Claire's story and question. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Spark. Hi, I'm Claire. I'm a single parent living in the outer Bayside suburbs of Melbourne, Australia. I juggle shared custody of my 12-year-old daughter and 9-year-old son. I've worked as a careers advisor at an independent school for about seven years now, alongside also being the HR manager at the same school for most of that time. So in both of these roles, continue to develop an interest in the exciting and often rather complex world of work, what brings us life and joy, and how we can also better integrate a lot of the unpaid roles that we often fulfill, especially those of us who are privileged to care for little humans. Uh, at the end of 2020, I also ran for election in my local government area, and I somehow got in. I've also just started six months of long service leave this week. So during this time, I'm going to be asking lots of big questions about life, 
and how I can best use my gifts and abilities in service of the community and yet how I might also keep paying the bills and putting food on the table. Uh, It feels like an exciting and daunting life experiment, but one that is a real privilege to be able to do. I'm going to be reading lots of books, taking lots of long walks, as well as having lots of chats over coffee. Um, My advisor, Spark Type, is seriously empowered and at times turbocharged by my strong essentialist streak. If there are efficiencies to find, I want to find them so that I can do more of what I love. Um, I think what I'm really trying to do in this next season is to distill all that I've learned over the past few decades. And one of those keys is that living simply can create new freedom and possibility, especially if we're willing to be brave and to question a lot of the norms that we inherit by our families of origin or sometimes broader society. My life savings are currently invested in a block of land where together with two friends, uh, we hope to build an eight dwelling co-housing community right in the heart of that city. My one big question at the moment, well, it's probably one of many, to be honest, anyway, relates to so much in our world being commodified. So in the medium term, I'm thinking of shifting into working more with adult clients outside of a school context, but I honestly loathe the idea of watching the clock and charging by the half hour as a consultant or coach. Um, I'm delighted to see a growing trend away from competition towards collaboration, away from transactional approaches to life and business towards deeply relational ones built on trust. So for me, I'm asking, could there be another workable model which will provide more value congruence and ensure I can still pay the rent? Could I offer a journey alongside people and ask them to pay what they could afford, to pay fees forward to cover the next client, or to simply ask that they pay what they feel my contribution has been worth to them? It's risky, it's vulnerable, it's brave, we're thinking about, I'm not sure that it would work. Others might have tried it. I'd really love to hear some reflections and ideas. Thank you. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. What an interesting moment um, for Claire. I mean, she's, there's so, oh God, there's so many different things to potentially speak about here. Like she, well, she's up to so many things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was interesting for a moment. I was, I was almost trying to guess what her spark type profile was along the way. And I kept yeah. changing at one point. I'm like, oh, she's an advocate. And then I'm like, she said, and then, so it was interesting to hear. So, so maybe let's start out and say, okay, as she shared, her primary spark type is, is the advisor, which is all about guiding through a process of growth, walking beside it's deeply relational 
and trust-based. Her shadow are kind of runner-up for those who are newer to our typing approach. That impulse is the essentialist, which is all about creating clarity, order from chaos, systems, process, utility. I believe early on she referenced that her anti, um, which is sort of the heaviest lift, was the performer, which is all about yeah. animating, energizing an interaction moment or experience. So, so that's kind of our starting point here, which I think is kind of interesting alone. Claire, I mean, she's been in various versions of people development and in the world of sounds like schools and academia for a long, long time, which is which is so interesting. That alone is fascinating to me because um, the world of academia in me has always been a little bit of this sort of like artificial construct that lives by its own rules, its own culture, its own ethos, which very often is not entirely related to day-to-day real life, especially in the context of the way that an um, essentialist views the world, which is about efficiency and clarity and utility. Often that entire world is, runs on almost the exact opposite. Yep. So where do we dive in here? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she's got a really clear set of personal values. Yeah. And so it's clear to me that that whatever she chooses, so she's got a six-month window of time to maybe focus on the elected office and also maybe figure some things out. So I feel like one way we might serve her is to give her some thoughts around how to best spend that six months um, as one idea. And, and then I, I want to challenge a couple of her assumptions that she sort of layered on towards the end about, well, she wants to do this, but she has some beliefs about how, how it can and cannot, cannot work. So Let, yeah, let's, I, is, that, is that specific enough? No, totally, totally agree. I think those are like th- two things that definitely jumped out at me also. Let, let's, st- let's start with the assumptions. Cause I think that's where you got to start here. Like what jumps out at you as, as, challengeable assumptions or things to sort of like invite curiosity around? I mean, for me personally, uh, and anyone who's in the coaching space who's ever listened to me at all knows that the whole idea of trading time for money is just not something that I believe is the way to go. And it's certainly you don't have to do things that way. When she talks about hiring herself out in some sort of counseling, coaching, whatever it is, kind of relationship, she, she seems to um, grab onto the assumption that it would involve trading, tracking and trading time for money. And that isn't what she wants to do. And then she explores sort of 12 other ways she might approach that where I would kind of invite her to go back and think, well, if that is work you want to be doing, I invite you to consider how you might create packages and so on that, that don't trade time for money to get, you know, because her alternatives involve things like people paying what they can afford and people paying forward to let other people benefit and that sort of thing, which is all wonderfully uh, sort of benefit oriented and and do good in the world oriented. But one of her goals is put food on the table and keep income coming in. And so, you know, I think that it would be less stressful for her if she could come up with an approach to the work she wants to do on a pricing model that doesn't have her parceling out little chunks of time for a certain number of dollars. Yeah, no, I and and you know I I agree with that <laughs> as well, and, and we both had conversations with many others, sort of like in various like different advisory types of fields, um, and I've had this internal conversation with myself over the years, like how do I structure my own offerings when I've been doing different things? Um, for those who haven't really 
gone into this because the reality is the vast majority of a consulting or advising or service oriented world does function on that model. What's the big red flag with that for you? It's like for those who haven't really sort of like, like who are hearing this and saying, I don't know, like, why is this such a big problem? Yeah. I mean, your only finite resource is time. And she's got things that already draw on her time pretty significantly, not least of which is being a parent of young humans, as she refers to them. And she's she's got an elected role that she has to fulfill. And so I don't imagine on that basis that she's got a whole lot of extra time, which means there's a cap on how many hours she might be able to sell. And without knowing what her specific income needs are, my immediate reaction is that I, I feel like you're arbitrarily capping your income if you decide you have to charge a certain number of dollars per hour. And given her experience, I have no doubt that she's in a position to add tremendous value to anybody she chooses to work with. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I 100% agree there. Um, the, the other thing that comes up with me when we talk about certainly the trading time for um, hours or time for money um, thing is that, and I've had this happen to me in the past where, you know, I would, I would literally set up a thing where it's like based on a, a one hour weekly type of thing, um, like over a certain window of time. And I started to realize that very often we could accomplish like w- the outcome that the person needed that week. We could be literally have a five minute conversation be done. Mm-hmm. They could get exactly what they needed yep. and they would be much better served to go and use the other 55 minutes acting on it. But because we had this artificial construct of time for a very fixed amount of, you know, like it was built into, it it built a structure that seemed really dysfunctional to me. And it set expectations around meeting, meeting deliverables and meeting outcomes um, based on just time rather than outcomes, rather than result, rather than the actual desired outcomes and results that people come to you for. Well, and the fact is the more practiced you are in your field, the less time it takes you (laughs) to ask the right question and give the piece of advice, whatever it is. I mean, uh, if any client who's ever worked with me is listening to this, a lot of them would be able to put their hands up and say, yeah, she sent me away after five minutes because I'm not pricing by the hour. We've booked an hour, but it's part of a larger picture. And if we get the thing done in five minutes, I'm going to invite you to go implement yeah. And, and I ended up, I mean, I, I haven't done that type of consulting in many years now, but when I was sort of like more into it, I eventually just started shifting away from that and saying, look, you know, like here's, here's X price you, you, to effectively have me on your team. Yeah. Um, you know, and that may mean one month we're actually like spending a lot more time together. And one month we mm-hmm. might touch base once for 15 minutes because right. that's what you need, but you know, I'll always be there. And like you said, Claire is clearly really experienced and skilled at what she does. Yeah. I'm sure that she has a tremendous amount to offer. And because she backs up the advocate's mm-hmm. impulse, I mean, the advisor's impulse with the essentialist impulse and skill set, right. my guess is she could deliver astonishing value in a, in a ridiculously short amount of time and then yeah. just bless people on to go do the work. Um, yeah, I think you're- so I think it's like... I love that you started with that as like an assumption to just question because especially in her case, it stands out as like something to really explore. Um, What were some of the other assumptions that jumped out at you? Uh, I think there's an implicit assumption that she can do all the things that she's got on her plate, mm. <laughs> which, uh, you know, you know, without knowing what age her kids are and so on. But she talked about building a co-housing community. I've been adjacent to a process like that. It is a full-time job. Uh, I'm trying to think what else there was. There were just, there were a lot of things that, and it's funny because even when she talked about how she plans on spending her six months, there was a great long list of things she plans to do, which made me immediately start to think, oh, too many inputs 
too many goals, too many commitments, too many items to tick off, as opposed to some being and sitting and reflecting. And, you know, she said she's going to do some of that too. But yeah, what else? What, what did I miss? Yeah, I, think no, a, I mean, just to add to that, that jumped out at me also. And, and maybe... And no small part also because I'm literally, we're having this conversation, you know, like a, a breath away from me emerging from my own just month long um, creative sabbatical, which the, you know, the biggest realization was it was way too short yeah. and that I overbuilt my expectations of what I thought I was going to do, you know, probably by five to 10 X into that time. Yeah. And, and even knowing, even somebody who's really devoted a lot of my sort of like my days to creating space, to like building space into my, my operating and, and creating model, I grossly underestimated what I would need and and how much just wandering time and yeah. incubating time I would need in that time. Now, six months is a lot more gracious than one month. But like you said, Clara sounds like she already has an incredibly full and abundant and rich life. So as our dear friend, Charlie Gilkean, member of the Spark Brain Trust, so often like reminds me, assume that you've got the bandwidth for, I think he says five, no more than five projects in your life on any given week and month. You know, and, and factored into those projects are health and well-being, like parenting, family, yeah. you know, like all the other stuff. It's not just work. And then when you look at it that way, you're like, huh. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been on the receiving end of Charlie's two many projects. I have too. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. He was completely right. So to, to really take a good look at that. And by the way, while she's enjoying her six months on long service leave, as she describes it, she's, she's still running a family and, and in her elected role. And so she's really, she doesn't have six whole months. She has some percentage of her capacity for six months. And that's a, that's quite a different thing than sort of stepping out of your life for an extended period of time. So again, I want to invite her to do less in, and find some ways to carve out chunks of time where she can just be being, because I feel like for someone like Claire, who is so wired for efficiency and so used to having so many things going on, it's, it'll be very easy for her to have a whole lot of boxes to check and much harder for her to sit and reflect and allow space. And But that's where the growth, as you know, will happen. Yeah. And, and I also, I, I want to acknowledge there's very likely, because I felt this even just in like my own short sabbatical, I felt like I went into it saying, okay, I only have this fixed window of time. Who knows when and if I'll ever be able to do something like this again? I have to. I started shooting myself left and right. I'm like, I must do this. I have to get this done. I have to get this done. I have to get this done. I had a massive checklist of like large and small things. Oh, I love it. And uh -huh. that ended up not making more, me more productive, but rather tormenting me and having oh. like pushing me into a, a, a scarcity and urgency mindset the whole time. Until I finally just realized what I was doing to myself and said, you know what, maybe I don't get all of these things done, but at least I need to let go a little bit so I can just feel like whatever time I have and whatever I do accomplish, it's been time well used and I feel okay. Like part of the whole purpose of, I think, an experience like this is not just to accomplish things, but to accomplish being human more fully. Yes. And I think sometimes we don't build that in. As an important part of, you know, like what we're trying to do during windows like this. 
Yeah, she's got a beautiful opportunity in front of her. And I would, uh, what I wish for her is that it really, um, she allows it to have enough space in it that it might potentially really shift something in her or open something in her. Yeah, I love that. Now, I want to wrap down also towards um, later in what Claire was sharing. I love her sort of her value set and ethos around simplicity and community. Mm, So cool. So cool. So powerful. And there is an element of the gift economy. There's an element of let's streamline life to remove, you know, like um, complexity. Let's get back to the value of human beings being in relation, sharing, helping each other. So powerful. And also, you can tell that that value set is informing her desire to want to be of service to people and not not approach them with the lens of commodities as right. like units of income, yeah. but just want to be able to serve the people who need what she has to offer the most. Yeah. And this this really wraps around to like her what her big question was like, how do I do this dance? Because I do need to live. I do need to pay my yeah. bills. I want to feel safe and secure. I've got a family, but I also really want to be in service a people who I know I can help and also a percentage of whom at least can't really afford to pay me what I know my market value is. I know that you, like you have worked with so many people in the advising and coaching professions. This has got to come up in that context on a regular basis. Yeah. And I mean, for my company, at least what we do is we make sure that we always have a certain number of pay less or pay nothing pro bono. There's always a certain percentage of our capacity that we allocate to, and I know for me personally, I've always got at least two not-for-profit clients and, you know, it was that kind of thing. So it's useful to just consider how much time and capacity does she have available? What's the minimum level of income she needs to make? And what could she allocate with some really specific metrics around it to say, you know, I will take on two clients, two pro bono clients a month, or, you know, just it's aligned with her own capacity, but supporting that value system. Because otherwise, I think you start to experience a real sense of inauthenticity. Yeah, what what came up with for me, and, and I love that model, it's really similar, what came up for me, when, and it's actually like, you saying that brings me back to in a past life. Um, by the way, I found myself saying in a past life a whole lot over the last few months. And there's actually a whole bunch of stuff I want to write around the concept. Um, because I realized, I know, I realized like I've had a lot of past lives. <laughs> um, I, I owned a yoga uh, center in New York City for seven years. We trained hundreds of teachers from around the world, sometimes in multiple languages. And one of the things that came up on an ongoing basis with people, you know, because most people who are drawn to this, they're drawn to it because they love the practice, they love the power of it. And they also, they, they're deeply drawn to service, to, to helping others. And especially in the world of yoga, the notion of charging often like real money yeah. um, feels dirty, feels gross, feels like I don't want to do that. I can't do that. How do I do it? And a lot of like emerging yoga teachers would really struggle with charging anybody, anything. And then they would point to this um, thousands of year old tradition of uh, the ancient sort of like yogas being ascetics who basically um, lived, you know, hand to mouth at a poverty level and just on whatever they were given. And, you know, you have to kind of zoom the lens up a little bit and say, okay, so that was then, this is now. Is That's the choice that they made. In, and it was also in the context of a different culture, a different system, mm-hmm. a different time. Um, you are you living in a modern day with certain values, certain expectations, certain responsibilities. And a lot of us have a responsibility or a value set that also says, I want to create 
whatever illusion of security and stability I can, not just for me, but also maybe for those who look to me to provide that sense for them as well. And that often, if you're a parent, includes your kids, or maybe it's relatives who are you're helping out in some way, shape, or form. Or maybe it's just a community of people who are in need, who you are serving as a conduit, where you are actually getting well-paid and then allocating some of that money to support others who are more in need. And we can't do that if we're not actually able to sustain ourselves financially. So we end up basically entirely walking away from that field of service and doing something entirely differently. And then everything that we're trying to accomplish falls apart. You know, so it is this difficult dance of saying, and the model that I came up with was very similar to what you said. I was like, figure out what you genuinely need to sustain yourself, to be comfortable, to be able to breathe and to give or donate to whatever it is that you want to say, like, that's a part of your value set. And then figure out how much bandwidth you have to then say, like, whoever shows up who deeply needs what I have to offer at whatever level they can pay or not pay. Yeah. Like this time is for them. And then if if that time is filled and more people show up, you know, it's not a matter of saying, sorry, no. It's a matter of saying, I would love to work with you. Right now, my ability to do that is allocated, but it generally does free up on sort of like a regular or recurring basis. If you like, let's stay in touch. Like if you want to sort of like keep a wait list for that, whatever it may be, so that when some space does come, I can, I can come back to you. And if you still are in need, um, I'd be happy to sort of explore it then. Yeah. And that is such a a lovely conversation to be able to have. The other thing to bear in mind as she talks about working in schools, giving her a real curiosity and sort of fire around the world of work and what makes people tick and how to integrate roles and the idea that people generally have more choice than they can exercise. All of those are topics that would be perfectly suited for work with well, I'll call it a business audience or an audience that is able to pay based on the value that that returns. And it's great, I think, to recognize you can have multiple audiences for your work and you might price your offering differently if you price it at all, to your point about, about kind of leaving space. So it's entirely possible that she could do work with a business or organizational kind of customer that would give her then some flexibility to do some work that for people who can pay less or not at all. Uh, I, and I love that. I, I have like dear friends of mine run um, an organization that has five companies under it, mm. but one of those companies is a really high level um, creative agency. Mm-hmm. And they work with, you know, like big, well-financed clients, charge them big, well-financed client money. Yeah. And then they turn around and they use a huge part of that money to fund on the ground social impact projects, to fund uh, school and educational development projects, to fund all these other endeavors. Um, So they've they've literally built the entire company from the ground up to be able to do that. And so your point about like when you have, you know, like expertise and wisdom and skills that would be valuable to different audiences who would be, you know, like able and willing to pay at different levels, you have the ability to potentially do that. And it sounds like Claire I think she may be in that kind of position. Yeah, so an, another be, thing to be. explore. Yeah, she might, yeah. she might be already, or she certainly could be, I think, from the sounds of it. Yeah, love it. I think we've covered a lot of different uh, mm-hmm. ideas here. Any any final thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, honestly, a flag on the co-housing thing. Mm. <laughs> That's a big job. <laughs> That's a big job. Um, I love it. It's the way of the future. I think those things have to get built. Um, I just 
feel like anybody I know who's ventured into that has vastly underestimated the degree to which it is a consuming um, significant project. So that's just a little little flag on that one. But by all means, if it's if it's on your radar and you can do it, you should because more of those yeah. can happen. <laughs> Same, same. I guess. <laughs> similar, similar thoughts. Um, and I, I, I think we're both huge fans of like the idea of communal living and co-housing too. I think it is. There's so many astonishing benefits, but oh, to like literally like make one of those <laughs> from the ground up, it is a gargantuan effort. I too have been sort of like involved with different people who've been in that space, and the social dynamics alone of managing that yeah. um, is almost a full time job. It awesome. really is. <laughs> Karen, thank you as always. Claire, thanks so much for your thoughtful questions. Um, we're excited to hear what emerges. So keep in touch over these six months. Mm-hmm. And for everybody else listening in, always a pleasure to be in conversation with you. We will see you again next week. Take care. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation, learned a little something about your own quest to come alive and work in life, and maybe feel a little bit less alone along this journey to find and do what sparks you. And if you'd love to share your own moment and question with us, we would love to hear from you. Just go ahead and click on the submissions link in the show notes to get the details on how to do that. And remember, if you're at a moment of exploration, looking to find and do or even create work that makes you come more fully alive, that brings more meaning and purpose and joy into your life, take the time to discover your own personal Sparkotype for free at Sparkotype.com. It'll open your eyes to a deeper understanding of yourself and open the door to possibility like never before. And hey, if you're finding value in these conversations, please just take an extra second right now to follow and rate Sparked in your favorite podcast app. This is so helpful in helping others find the show and growing our community so that we can all come alive and work in life together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked.